Welcome to Revelier's Value-Based Healthcare Podcast. In every episode, we discuss healthcare technology, innovation, and current events, presenting interviews with the thought leaders from a variety of disciplines of healthcare. Don't miss any episode by subscribing to the series via Revelier.com. And now, here's our host, Jay Ackerman, introducing today's guest. Our guest today is a television personality, cardiothoracic surgeon, Columbia University professor, journalist, and best-selling author. I'd like to introduce Dr. Mehmet Oz. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me. Welcome. All right, Dr. Oz, let's dive right into a hot, meaty topic, the Affordable Care Act. What do you think it got right, and what would you improve? Well, what I would improve is make a, a document that could be carried by a human being. <laughs> You know, if you have thousands of pages, uh, it's going to be very difficult for people to understand it. In fact, we know for a fact that it wasn't really understood, uh, very difficult to implement it. And you end up with uh, a lot of very smart people spending a lot of time just to get it to, be, to function. And I know some of those people and they work very hard at it. But I, you know, when the president at the time, Obama said that, you know, you're never going to lose your own doctor. I do believe he thought that was the case. But who could have figured that out with all those competing agencies and entities? But what it got right, without question, is it dramatically reduced the number of uninsured people in America. And that was the ultimate goal of that act. I actually think that we may have opportunities now to do an even better job of reducing the number of uninsured, which we cannot allow to continue in America. It perverts the system. It makes it very difficult to implement a general preventive healthcare approach. One of the problems with our COVID response, I think, is we don't have that broader public health foundation culture within healthcare because it's not based on prevention. It's based on treatment, which is one of the reasons so many of our healthcare facilities are having trouble. 8% of doctors I just read and nurses and others are trading in the profession, so to speak, because sometimes they can't make ends meet because there's no healthy people or key people who have illnesses who need treatment outside of COVID who are coming to the office because they're all worried about COVID. And in most healthcare, most healthcare systems, you'd be basing your revenue on prevention so it wouldn't cause as much pain. I personally am a fan of Medicare Advantage for all. It's an idea that probably has some merit that has not been fully evaluated. It has limitations as well, but it might be a simpler way of using an already existing program that seems to function and getting all of America covered. So what would be the one headline around Medicare Advantage for all that, that you would share so that people understand what it really means or what it doesn't mean? Medicare Advantage is basically a Medicare HMO. So whether you like HMOs or not, there are managed care approaches to, to providing care, which many Americans are very happy with. It allows you to get lots of extra benefits because there's more bang for the buck. There's not a lot of wastage allowed because you're managing the care and reimbursing and benefiting high-quality care when done correctly. And it's worked for the Medicare population. About a third of Medicare beneficiaries are Medicare Advantage. And because of that, they get additional perks that allow them to benefit. They don't get charged any extra. And so that's the good part about it. We already have a plan that works. So you could extend that to a younger population under the age of 65 in a variety of different ways. But at its very core, probably 30% of the payroll tax, or I should say 30% of the salary an employee makes is, is dedicated to healthcare, one way or the other, uh, if the company is involved in paying for it. So we could take that same money and uh, have others contribute as appropriate, basically convert everyone to Medicare Advantage. And you'd probably be able to cover people, who, even those who were not em employed, because 30% is more than you'd need to be able to afford the healthcare system. You probably need 20% of the payroll in America to cover healthcare. And so you'd be able to provide care to everybody 
for an aggregate less money for a covered employee. So companies would be okay with it. Employees should be okay with it because they're covered more widely. The healthcare system would understand the rules better. And I think in the modern American experience, if you create rules that are understandable and followable uh, without overlapping agencies, not even knowing what the true effectiveness of the regulation or how to have been implemented is, then we, we can actually make a system that cohesively functions. Let's take advantage of the digital technologies that already exist to create a cohesive healthcare system that achieves our goal, better care for less money. And the most expensive care of all is bad care. So you talk about Medicare Advantage, and I kind of put that in the bigger bucket of government-sponsored care. And a big part of government-sponsored care has been the push to value-based care over fee-for-service. Where do you think we are in that continuum? It's getting better. I think Medicare, because it's got such a huge bucket of revenue to distribute, can put value into the equation. It's harder for smaller insurance companies that know their covered beneficiaries shift every 18 months to do that. Just to be clear, Medicare Advantage is the money comes from government, but the actual implementation comes from private sector companies, like it does for Medicare Advantage, right? You go to large private companies that are theoretically really nimble and able to do value care calculations and implementation, and you let them actually dole the money out in the best way possible. And I think that's probably a better way of doing it than having it organized at the federal level. It's just difficult to have a federal entity customize care at the local communities and states that are so different from each other. But the funding process could be done at a universal level because those rules would be applicable across the country, no matter where you're in a small little you know, place down in Louisiana or in the middle of midtown Manhattan. Do you envision value-based care arrangements being kind of the fundamental norm for how we pay for healthcare? I do believe value-based approaches will be the foundation of effective healthcare system. As a practicing physician, I can tell you the most expensive thing that we do in healthcare is provide fractured path of care where people don't get a comprehensive, cohesive management around the complicated things that are happening to them. And it's difficult for the patient, their families, the doctors, no one likes it. And it's very expensive because it's inefficient. And all those are improvable, but only if you have everyone playing by the same rules or if you at least have you know, one spreadsheet that you're on. If someone comes to my office for care, I really have no idea, nor do they, uh, about whether they're covered or not, what, how much are they covered for. And I have a whole staff of people who only do that. All of that, by the way, great jobs, but do we really want to pay that money for middle management just to be able to figure out and arbitrate who gets paid what? And that's existing in every doctor's office, every insurance company, every, man, every hospital system. They all have those large infrastructures completely uh, designed to deal with the complexity of the system. And when there's complexity, the better you understand the system, the more you can game it, which means people get paid sometimes just because they understand the system, not because they provide better quality care. Yeah, I don't know if this number is accurate or not, but I've, I've heard recently up to 30 cents on the dollar going to administrative. I've heard similar numbers, about a third of the healthcare system. Well, listen, if you add up a third of the healthcare system goes to administrative elements, probably half the healthcare expenses go for chronic illnesses, which are better managed in a preventive approach rather than episodic when people develop symptoms. You're talking about a lot of, of the healthcare system that has kept us apart from each other on finding a solution that could be addressed. And so instead of quibbling over the pennies about where, you know, who's going to pay for what, where, well, we know ultimately if you get sick, you're going to get care. Just is it, is it free care where they get paid in the back end? Is it fully paid, you know, Cadillac service and everything in between, but the total amount of money that gets, you know, consumed is, I mean, or at least the resources that are consumed are going to be the same because if you're having a heart attack, you're going to still get care. So let's just do it in an organized way so we're all incentivized to prevent the heart attack rather than try to treat it. My dad, who was a physician, just lost him. He was 93 years of age, but always tell me the old Turkish proverb, 
which it takes, you know, one fool to throw a penny down a well and 99 wise men to get it back up again. You know, we've got a bunch of wise people looking down in the well trying to figure out how to pull that penny up. Let's prevent the penny from getting tossed in the first place. Yeah, well, that's a great proverb. All right, let's let's zoom out a level. What are you most excited about in the world of healthcare? I love the fact that science can work cohesively. Uh, ability to, to create a vaccine in 10 months against COVID-19 is a great example of that. Not just one, but numerous vaccines, many of which are going to work as effectively as the ones we know about already. And this is a, a shortening of a timeline that's usually five to 10 years to 10 months. And we already have the, the product already paid for by the government. So it demonstrates you can cut red tape without cutting corners and create an incredibly high quality result. And the ability to create a vaccine, which will change the, the destiny of the human race, at least for the next year or two, also means we've got tactics that might work for future illnesses and cancer and other therapies. So the science is rapidly advancing and much more sophisticatedly addressing chronic illnesses we didn't think we had answers for. That's the best solution uh, of all for everybody. Everyone's happy about it. We just need a funding mechanism to pay for it. Right now, it's cobbled together at times. When we put our mind to it, as has happened with COVID-19, anything's possible. When you break it into little fractured elements, it doesn't work so well. I'll give you one live example. A good friend of mine is responsible for the Joey Foundation. Joe O'Donnell is his name. Joe had a son who passed away from cystic fibrosis. He and his wife, Kathy, who were pained by this beautiful young boy who was able to live for 13 years. But when he passed, they didn't know what to do. So they put their grief into creating a foundation that took business approaches to finding solutions. At the time, as you know, having cystic fibrosis was a death penalty. And over the course of several decades, they took all their money, they invested it together with other cystic fibrosis patients and the people who care about them who are donating money, and they started putting money into solutions that they believed would work. Even though large companies saw it as an orphan illness, they weren't going to deal with it, you know, tens of thousands of kids were dying from it. So they were able to fund research that resulted in, in, in solutions that they were able to sell to pharmaceutical companies for billions of dollars because the, these, these treatments really do work. And they took that money, they put it back into better ideas to, build, to make better solutions that they again sold to pharmaceutical companies for billions of dollars. And now they've crafted this juggernaut, which has allowed us to treat 95% of cystic fibrosis patients successfully. You take a pill and you don't die of the disease. It's pretty straightforward math. And they take that money and they're not putting it into multiple sclerosis and ALS and other illnesses we've all heard about, but never could do much about. That's a innovative a mechanism of taking private techniques with public solutions and marrying them so we get the answers we desire. Yeah, that's a great story. And, uh, and going back to the COVID-19 vaccine, I mean, it's pretty remarkable that in a period of 10 months that we can have several vaccines getting ready to come to market and a cycle that normally takes five to 10. Let's, um, I'm sure a little bit behind that is AI. So let's talk about artificial intelligence and the impact you see it having in healthcare over the next five years. Any thoughts? AI is the most important advance that will affect medicine in our lifetime. It will allow us to both prevent some of the simple errors by providing decision support. So uh, you, your doctor, everyone involved uh, will get clues, hints about where to look, where the problems might be, identify symptoms early so they can be managed more rapidly, discover whole new ways of treating people with who have life-threatening problems just by understanding a bit more and predicting with the more sophisticated analytics what the best approaches are. And most importantly, it'll make our treatment current with what our research is. Right now in, in medicine, it takes years for new ideas to percolate through the healthcare system. And by the time they're finally used, it's always 
ancient data that's guiding today's care. With AI systems, we're going to be able to say, based on what's known today, plus all this data that's come in to teach us what's happening currently, the best way to manage heart failure is boom. And you know, you had a kielbasa last night. Because of that, you put on two pounds. And we know that from your internet everywhere scale that's connecting you to remote patient monitoring. Now your doctor immediately has an algorithm or automatically allows you to take an extra water pill to get rid of the, the salt water from the kielbasa. And your kielbasa doesn't end up landing you in the hospital with a life-threatening exacerbation of your heart failure. And since heart failure is the number one DRG in America, you can see why there's a multiplier benefit there. And AI, although it's expensive to develop, the results should more than pay for it. The real challenge is, is, is you know, who's going to own AI in medicine? And I would love that to be a little bit more open source so everyone can benefit from it. Where do you see AI having an impact today? Well, the most practical things I would focus on are the chronic illnesses that drive half the healthcare budget, because many of them are seen as tedious, time-consuming, not so rewarding aspects of being a doctor. You know, family practice guys don't get up in the morning and say, how do I treat diabetes today? And so the ability to put AIs at interface to look for subtle clues of behavior that we know will impact on your diabetes, hypertension, your cholesterol issues, your asthma, your allergies, whatever, would be great. And then you have uh, a, a sort of a doctor extender. Uh, as uh, as a tool that can, can immediately be a coach in the pocket of the patient, giving them the advice they shouldn't hear from their doctor if the doctor was in their pocket. But we don't fit. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great way to think about it, the doctor extender. Well, well Dr. Oz, has been a great dialogue. Let's start to kind of wrap it up with kind of uh, rapid five. So five things uh, real quick. What keeps you up at night? The belief that we will not provide health care to everybody. And as a a derivative of that, we therefore will not truly have a preventive healthcare system. So while you're kind of ruminating over that and sleepless nights, like what book might you pick up from your nightstand and why you're reading it? There's a great book uh, written by uh, the Stand Together Institute, which I would recommend to everybody. So there's a great new book that uh, just came out. Uh, it's called Believe in People, Bottom-Up Solutions to a Top-Down World. It's written by Charles Koch and Brian Hooks, which um, you know, they're the they're leaders of the Stand Together Foundation. And what this book, Believe in People, basically says is this decade, we need to focus more on bottom-up solutions by letting people, innovative social entrepreneurs, come up with answers that we then fund. And it can be funded through private philanthropy. We don't even need to bring the government into this. But if there are times when you need the government to adjust, for example, criminal justice reform, which the Stand Together Foundation were major proponents of and in large part responsible for achieving in 2018, because they have the ability to mobilize people and point out that there are simple things that as a nation we should do that are nonpartisan. And I love the idea that if we believe in people, as Americans always have, then uh, we'll be able to give them, empower them to be change agents. That's what this country has always been about. We were yeah. inventors at our very core. And that's why, we're, that's why we're not called United Statesians. You know, we reinvent ourselves continually. And this is a time for us to do that again. I love it. That's a book off to pick up. Believe in people. All right. So favorite app on your phone? I've just an app called Sleep Score, uh, which is a, a really cool app. It takes advantage of the audio part of the bottom of the phone that can not just make noise, but listen to you as well. And it has a little sonar that comes out like a dolphin at night. I put it on my bedstand. It measures exactly how well I sleep. It's the most meticulous sleep tracking device. And it, and I, it, it tells me uh, whether the quality of my sleep was good or not, how long, all that stuff that you want to know, but then it grades you. So I actually race myself every night when I go to bed. Oh, that's fantastic. I've been relying upon the sleep score and Fitbit. So I'm going to have to check out this app. All right. Uh, what do you do to recharge? I do a lot of yoga. 
Actually, physical activity helps me recharge by resting my mind. But what wears me down the most is when I'm thinking all the time and not letting my body get involved. So getting a little flexible uh, in my body, as well as a little strength training. And it's, you know, it's physically rigorous to do power yoga. Yeah. But as, as I do that, I get myself into a place where I can meditate. And that frees me to connect dots and be more creative uh, than I ever would have been. Awesome. All right. So on the creative thread, what's the most creative thing you've been you've done during this kind of shelter in place period? I started playing piano again. We now have family competitions. Uh, where there are a bunch of cool apps on on phones now that can make you a much better piano player than <laughs> than I ever was. <laughs> and so some of the kids sing, some of them perform, some play piano or, or guitar. So we have a little family band. And when we're tired of that, we go play rock band uh, on the video. <laughs> Love it. Sounds like uh, sounds like a really fun home. Well, Dr. Oz, thanks for joining us on the Value-Based Healthcare Podcast today. I really appreciate your time. God bless you. Good luck to you. Take care. Great. Thank you. Over and out. Over and out. Thank you for listening to the Value-Based Healthcare Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it via LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. For more healthcare technology news and information, follow Revelier on LinkedIn. We hope you join us next time.